0: Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Trent Fowler, and tonight I'm doing a solo episode. But as you know, my co-host Thomas Fry and I are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience in analyzing trends and communicating new developments to audiences across the world. Reach out to us at... Damn it. I'll just, I'll take it from the top. Good evening everyone and thank you for listening to the Futurati podcast where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Trent Fowler and tonight I'm doing a rare solo episode but as you know my co-host Thomas Fry and I are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience in analyzing trends and communicating new developments to audiences across the world. Reach out to us at futuratipodcast.com contact-futurati if you'd like to hire us for consulting, to speak at your event, or to advertise on our podcast. Now we just wrapped up, I just wrapped up a remarkable episode with a legal scholar named Alan McKay, Dr. Alan McKay. He is based in Australia and his whole professional focus these days is on the intersection of philosophy and law and emerging technology. So he spends a lot of time thinking about things like neural technology, for example, brain computer interfaces, monitoring devices, Uh, devices that boost your ability to pay attention to things or could shave the peaks and valleys off your emotions, and how we should think about those legally. So, for example, we have questions like, you know, are psychopaths morally culpable for their behavior? And does that change if we have the ability to inject a probe into their brain that changes the way that their their minds work, that their neural architecture is is structured, and therefore could boost their moral agency. Is that a thing that we should be playing with and under what conditions should we do so? Obviously, there are any number of really serious ethical questions which surround such an endeavor. Uh, For example, what may begin as a technology to help impulsive people control their anger so they don't commit violent assault, could, with some modifications and some spread, become a technology for making sure that nobody ever gets out of hand at a political protest. And eventually you have a population of people that just aren't capable of getting really angry over the the gravest injustices. So this is very rich ground. It reminds me a lot of Ramez Nam's trilogy, Nexus, which covers some of the same territory. I recommend you read that uh, if you're into this kind of thing. But before you do, please check out this episode number 106 with Alan McKay. Tonight I'm joined by Dr. Alan McKay. Alan is deputy director of the Sydney Institute of Criminology and an academic fellow at the University of Sydney's Law School. He coordinates the legal research units at the Sydney Law School and lectures in criminal law. Named as one of the most influential lawyers of 2021 for his work on neurotechnology, he is a member of the Management Committee of the Julius Stone Institute of Jurisprudence at the University of Sydney, an affiliate member of the Center for Agency, Values, and Ethics at McCary University, and a member of the Minding Rights Network, an international group who are working on human rights challenges related to emerging technologies. If you enjoy this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends, and don't forget to check out our website, FuturatiPodcast.com. Alan, thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Thanks for the invitation.
0: Let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems that you work on today.
1: Uh, so I my background's in law. I used to be a, a commercial litigator, um, the big commercial firm. And, and then I uh, moved into teaching law. And um, initially, I got interested in... Uh, behavioural genetics and sentencing. I've got a philosophical interest in the free will problem. And um, that was a way of studying something a bit related to the philosophical problem of free will in a a law school. And then, so I did my uh, PhD in that. And then I started to um, do some work on cases involving neuroscience, so um, cases where uh perhaps a offender is being sentenced and they've got a uh, an issue with a uh, brain abnormality maybe some issue with their frontal cortex or something like that and that's raised as a mitigating factor in sentencing and so i started working on that and then maybe about five years ago i uh, started to get interested in neurotechnology uh, brain computer interfaces and that sort of thing and um so i've been working on that uh for the past uh you know sort of four or five years and um, as a result of that the law society of england and wales they asked me to write a report on neurotechnology and the law and the legal profession and that's that's really how i how i came to uh be doing that
0: that's fascinating have you always had an interest in those philosophical issues and and how they redound upon the law
1: um i I yeah well since um since the end of my undergraduate degree so I did a couple of I did some philosophical uh units in that so I did my um, course called Scottish legal thought and the Enlightenment but the um mm-hmm. it was actually the criminology uh course that I did as an undergraduate that um introduced me to the free will problem and uh so it was actually through criminology that I. Be- initially became interested in the free will problem. And I I did, you know, I left it for a while. I was a commercial litigator, but I have come back to it. And um, along with one of my um, American colleagues, actually, Michael Saville at this uh, law school, we edited, we wrote a edited book on free will and the law. So we published that. So uh, I've still got the philosophical interest in free will and I'll no doubt come back to it
0: again. Yeah. So where do you come down that we have free will, we don't have free will? What's your answer?
1: Um, it's it's very, I, I find it a very d- difficult question. The more I study it, the more I re- realize why the debate's gone on so long. And um, I've seen very good arguments that make me think that um, we can't have free will or we can't be responsible. We can't deserve punishment for our wrongs or reward for our the good things we do but then it's very hard to reconcile that with the way I live my life. And um, so uh, I think in my work, I do presuppose a kind of free will, but um, I'm sympathetic to the skeptical arguments. And I, I just see it as a very difficult problem that I haven't uh, resolved. And I don't think uh, others have although really, some claim to. But uh,
0: Yeah, I, I know. I know how you feel. So when I was in college i I officially majored in psychology but i was also very interested in neuroscience and philosophy so i took a lot of classes in those things and i I came down in sort of the same situation where i could read these arguments about how we don't have free will and yet at almost every moment i feel myself making choices and it seems like that first person introspective data does count for something surely i mean where does that feeling arise from if 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 not from some kind of ability to choose between different alternatives that's
1: right yeah there's the first person uh Introspective data, and then there's also the the um, evaluations of others and that sort of thing, and it's just hard to shake this uh, this belief in 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 free will that um, that I I have, but it goes for a while just after I read Galen Strawson or some persuasive philosopher who says mm-hmm. we don't have it, but it doesn't last for long.
0: then i choose between a sandwich or you know a a chicken thigh and then it's okay well here here we are once again believing in free will it's up to me yeah Yeah. so (laughs) uh what are some of the ways in which that interacts with legal questions
1: so the way i've um the thing i've been interested in is primarily the justification of punishment so Mm -hmm. um like uh many jurisdictions around the world um australia has a mixed justification of punishment so some of the reasons that are stated as um justifications of punishment are consequentialist so they're Mm -hmm. you know aiming to protect the community to deter people to um rehabilitate them uh, to incapacitate the danger dangerous but then there's also a retributive justification uh so the idea is that Um, offenders are supposed to get what they deserve for the moral culpability that they displayed in committing the offence and I think it's that um, retributive justification that is um, problematic if if there's no free will you know the consequentialist uh, community protection or oriented um, justifications of punishment uh, don't seem so reliant on people having free will but uh It's hard to see how people can really deserve to be punished if they don't have free will in some kind of meaningful sense.
0: I've always wondered if maybe I couldn't make a paper out of the claim that an individual's and a society more generally's views on their personal efficacy feedback into the matrix of causes that ultimately determine their behavior. So even if maybe there's not some neurological basis for free will, the mere fact that you believe yourself to be capable of this or that ultimately influences which path you take in a way that's very consequential. So maybe we should believe in free will, even if we have no great justification for it, which is not a satisfying answer, but I could probably get a paper out of that if I really tried
1: yeah no the i mean i'm sympathetic to the um idea of illusionism i mean that's a philosopher Saul smolansky uh he thinks that there's a sense in which nobody deserves any punishment but there's also a kind of sense in which they do and that's partly illusory but he's okay with that he thinks it's largely beneficial and uh yeah it may well be even if we do not have free will this something um beneficial about believing it, uh, even if it's false. So yeah, I'm I'm, I'm sympathetic to that view.
0: So let's get into neurotechnology. I originally found you because you had published this blockbuster report on neurotechnology and the law. That's a, a major recent research interest of yours. So I guess first of all, I don't know if this is necessary, but let's go ahead and define neurotechnology because sometimes words like this can be a little slippery. And then let's get right into the meat of the report okay
1: so the 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 definition is actually it is quite tricky um so i think of it as uh technologies that um uh read from the brain you know take data from the brain or um and or uh directly interact with it uh and so for example something like uh a brain computer interface that um uh reads neural activity and allows a person to control a device or a cursor or something like that that would be a form of um new that reads from the brain and then perhaps some kind of uh, electrical stimulation to address parkinson's or avert an epileptic fit that might be coming or something like that 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 involves uh, uh directly interacting with the brain um in a kind of direct way, rather than the way that same mediated
0: through the, the senses. That's uh yeah, the, the directness seems important for the definition, because as you were saying that yeah. I was thinking like, well, I mean, wouldn't language kind of count? I mean, I, I can say words and impact your nervous system in a way that you don't have a lot of control over. And if I'm really, really good at convincing people to do stuff, arguably, there's there's almost a kind of neurotech angle to that. But we, we need we need that distinction and I think the directness is a really good uh hook yeah. to hang, hang the hat on
1: yes that's that's right yeah I think um the the problem is um you know of course many things interact with you know your language is not is, is interacting with my brain but um it's uh to to nail it down to this there's this kind of practical problem of what to do about something and uh you know there's various technologies being developed and need to think about what to do about them so it's maybe something of a kind of pragmatic definition uh, you know of um this kind of directness is just useful um in in trying to decide what to do about neurotechnology
0: So I have a background in neuroscience, and I do machine learning and and, uh, data science now. So I'm not super up on neurotech, but it is an interest of mine. And it's something that I kind of passively follow. And it doesn't seem to me like the technology is far enough along yet for there to be serious legal questions. Are you you just trying to get out in front of it? Or do you disagree with that assessment? Do you think that actually a a company like Neuralink is on the cusp of probing kind of serious ethical questions that need to have a, a jurisprudential framework around them now
1: uh so i'm 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 trying to get ahead of the game i think but um you know so there are at the moment so the way i actually initially got into it was when i first heard you know I first started thinking about brain computer interfaces mm-hmm. um i actually you know i was teaching i lecturing criminal law so i was Teaching the criminal law class when I first started thinking about it. And then uh, we have this distinction between the actus reus and the mens rea. So the mens reus is the guilty mind, and the actus reus is the um, criminal act, or it could be an omission, or occasionally it's a status, but usually it's an act. So, like throwing a punch or something like that. Um, now, it, you know, I imagine somebody um, committing an offense by way of brain computer interface. Um, And I actually looked at the revenge porn offence initially, you know, so imagine somebody assembling intimate images of another person without their consent, knowing that they don't consent and then uploading it and doing it all by way of uh, mental acts. So they imagine a hand wave or something and that moves the cursor right and they imagine kicking a football and that selects and they assemble the images, put them up on social media that way. So the prosecution have got to prove beyond reasonable doubt that the defendant has performed the um, actus reus, but there's something unusual or non-standard about this actus reus because it uh, doesn't involve the muscle system, and it's uh, it's almost like there's this kind of distinction between the guilty mind and the the um, the criminal act. That is uh, comes under a bit of pressure because they, in a sense, they a lot of them seem to be uh, the things that the defendant did seem to be um, mental. And so I guess what what one um, one thing that occurred to me is well, you know, there are there are a number of people now that are um, interacting with the world by way of brain computer interfaces. So some people are are um you know people locked in syndrome and they are um you know they're interacting with their devices or um by way of brain compute interface and then there are others that are you know maybe using non-invasive headsets and they're using it for gaming and that sort of thing but but you know it may well be that somebody has already committed an offense you know there's enough people using it it's hard to imagine that nobody's done anything wrong out of <laughs> you know all the people that are using it and so there's um that was a kind of theoretical um problem for the law that that just it just seems very seems a bit weird from the um perspective of uh, legal doctrine i you know i'm sure if somebody commits an offense by way of brain con- computer interface they won't say well you did it by brain computer interface so you're not guilty uh, they'll find a, a way of um you know handling that but anyway that I guess that's one thing that you know some somebody could have committed their offence or maybe um engaged in some other legally significant action in a non-standard way that kind of um presents some odd legal challenges um but when I got into it I um I initially um met uh, an American uh, professor a uh, professor at Columbia called Raphael Yust who's um he's uh he's right on the cutting edge of neuroscience neurotech he's a professor at Columbia and he's um set up this organization called the NeuroRights Rights Foundation and um in conversations with him um that i've had over over the past few years um you know i've started to think that um you know he's concerned about the human rights dimension to neurotechnology and these kind of initial problems like what's the actus reus and in a you know in a criminal matter they seem a bit dwarfed by some of the um possible human rights implications that um need to be thought through and that's that's sort of I'm not a human rights expert I you know I'm lecturing criminal law but um it makes me think that there are you know there's there's something important to be considered here and there's a debate to be had uh about what to do with this technology uh given some possible um human rights implications of it
0: what are some ways in which you foresee people using neural technology to hurt others, or or to violate rights?
1: Well, you know, so the the thing is, the, um, the human rights system uh, that we, we have is largely, it's largely set up after World War Two, and um, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the subsequent covenants. And at that time they weren't really thinking about um, people having access to uh, mental uh, you know to thoughts they weren't uh thinking about sort of direct kind of fine-grained stimulation okay there was ideas um there might have been some some ideas about um the effect of drugs and stuff on people but but not the kind of fine-grained possibilities for um, interfering with someone's perception or behavior that, that might become that might be presented by uh, neurotechnology so I think I think the, the sort of immediate thing is is the reading side you know decoding um, you know I don't know if you've seen the the work of Jack Gallant. at um, I think he's at UC Berkeley where he 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 um, I think it uses fMRIs to and shows people movies and then decodes these hazy images of the movies that they can see from their neural activity. Right, right. Um, and you know, the this this kind of accessibility of the contents of someone's mind uh to others uh wasn't really envisaged. And so okay, there's there's rights to privacy, but the um Chileans have changed their constitution. I know there's a big constitutional change that failed a few weeks ago, but at the end of 2021, they did actually make a, a smaller change to their constitution that includes reference to mental privacy. Um, and so that's that mental privacy thing, it might be encompassed in more generally in the the uh, human right to uh, private life, but but maybe it isn't, and maybe there needs to be a bit more thinking about this new dimension to it. And then, but then the subsequent one is more uh, perhaps the the bigger and more difficult thing, and the longer term issue is is I think is manipulation. So of course there's all these debates about algorithmic uh, manipulation and micro targeting and all that sort of thing. Um, right, right. But um, you know, let's say let's say some company has got has got access to um, you know data gleaned from social media and web searches and that sort of thing, and then they also add some data gleaned from uh, some kind of neural interface, whether it be on the wrist or on the head or something, you know, and then they start to know a lot, don't they? They start to know quite a lot about people. Um, and with knowledge comes power and the you know the concern about manipulation just seems to get ramped up and then if you add in direct some form of direct brain stimulation so let's say neurotech becomes a good way of treating depression or anxiety or alzheimer's or something like that well who's got who's a bit depressed who's a bit anxious who's losing their memory but it's a lot of people isn't it that have Mm -hmm. got that have got something like that and then you know the way it would treat it would be some form of stimulation um you know some sort of reading and some kind of writing and then the question is well there's this data that's being stored and okay the you'd you'd hope whoever runs the uh the technology only uses it for the therapeutic purpose, but maybe not, you know, maybe they use it for some other commercial purpose or uh, some kind of political purpose. And, you know, the, these are the, so these, so, you know, I initially started, oh, that's an interesting question. What's the actus race? But it sort of seems to get a bit dwarfed by these, um, or a bit sort of um, less it seems less significant, related to these other uh, these other concerns that are a bit more distant, but they are they are worth thinking about now. I mean, the the senator from um, uh, that was instrumental in sort of pushing the constitutional change through in Chile is Senator Girardi, and he made the point that you know we're a bit slow to uh, regulate social media, and it kind of cost us. Uh, because there's now some problems it's not quite clear what to do about them you know it's maybe it seems to have made some issues in the political process and stuff and the horses bolted yeah and so yeah, the, yeah. I, the idea is to kind of you know get on the front foot and so the my report for the law society what I wanted to do was bring it to the attention of lawyers um, because most lawyers don't know anything about it they're they're all they know about ai and you know there's a lot of consideration of ai and how it might affect legal practice and some of the legal issues that um clients might have there's a sort of an awareness of that but the neurotech thing isn't and so uh, the law society of england and wales and i wanted to open this up so lawyers start thinking about this and you know maybe thinking about law reform and that sort of thing
0: Hello, this is Trent Fowler, co-host of the Futurati Podcast. One of the most common pieces of marketing advice I've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want. One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati Podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuratipodcast.com go to the contact page and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future and anything else you want us to know. We produce this show for you and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you. So to what extent do you think that some of this has to come down to cultural norms? This is an issue that I've been kind of kicking around for a while, uh, especially with podcast guests, because you mentioned the, the data question, the social media question, and that's what sparked this train of thought for me uh because for you know 10 or 15 years for as long as social media has existed people have just spewed this endless stream of data and and largely not cared and and even after some of the privacy concerns have come to light many people still don't care and so Mm. there's sort of this question of well i mean did facebook really do anything wrong if they gave the data out anyway and everybody kind of knew that there were these problems and i mean suppose the next iteration of a social media company has this big banner that says like we will use your data to target you politically for certain messages and people still use it anyway, it's like, well, it's, it's hard for me to assign culpability for them, even if I don't like the things that they're doing. So I feel my, like my current position here in September of 2022 is just that you know, maybe there's technological frameworks, maybe there's legal or regulatory frameworks, but a lot of it just has to come down to culture. I think people have to care more about these things and they have to understand the ways in which social media can be used against them, uh, the ways in which it can be used profitably for them and choose more of the, the latter than the former. Uh, some of it's just education and practice.
1: Yeah, so I I did actually make this um, point in, or a similar point in my report, I said, well, you know, there's a new technology, things could go a bit wrong, uh, and one tool to try and um, maximize the benefit and minimize the downside might be law, but absolutely, it's not the only, it's not the only tool, and, um, you know, this is a kind of policy decision you know that involves you know involves you know people with political skills tr- you know getting the tech companies on side and you know various various other non-legal approaches it's just um you, you shouldn't put all this everything down to the law to make it go right and so i i broadly agree with with your your points so education and other um forms of engagement that are non-legal um could be could be quite important. I mean like I think education is a good point, you know, so um as a sort of push around the world to get engineers and you know ed- engineering training to have a bit more engagement with ethics. And um yeah maybe that could could help prevent some some um unintended consequences i mean still people might act badly and probably the ethics training won't really stop that but maybe some people that uh, don't intend to act badly um might benefit from some kind of ethical reflection in their engineering degree and that might be helpful in part of the the way of um addressing some of the issues alongside the law and alongside other things
0: well ethics has it seems to me anyway to have been making its way into engineering curricula yeah at at a greater clip and i'm not at all i'm not at all convinced they have the right ethical framework but it is encouraging that they're at least considering the ethical dimensions of the tech that they're building and the ways in which it might go wrong and and the ways in which it it could be safeguarded
1: yeah yeah no i i think that's right it seems to only be a good thing i mean again you can't put too much stock in it it's not going to you know maybe that on its own is not enough my my feeling is there's got to be you know so the 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 um the people who are developing uh, neurotech they've they've really got to have this uh be thinking about um regulation that's coming mm-hmm. you know because because what's gonna what's gonna happen is that at some point there will be more regulation about brain data and that sort of thing you know maybe it'll be treated differently from other forms of health data and that sort of thing um but the um it'd be useful for neurotech companies now to take a kind of anticipatory stance and think well probably there's some kind of regulations coming and then if they know that, then it might shape some of their decisions and put the discussions about the ethical framework and stuff a bit, a bit up the list. So the law might kind of have a role in pushing it up the priority list a little bit, given that the ethical framework might give some guide to the way the law ultimately ends up. You know, the law is not just ethics sort of translated into a different form There's private interests and all that you know political gain all that sort of thing but maybe it's part of it and you know so it's 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 good for um probably for the tech companies to be put on notice that something's coming and they should try and hopefully do something it'll be compliant with whatever comes in
0: so we've said that the law can't bear the full brunt of managing this technology Safely and ethically. That having been said, you must have thought in broad strokes about the kind of legal framework you'd like to see emerge. So, can can you walk us through that briefly? Um. So, so the,
1: so I, I'm part of a I'm I'm part of a group called the Minding Rights Network, which is another it's a it's a thing that's um where scholars from various different parts of the world we're considering the um you know what what might need to change within human rights context and that and that kind of thing and so um we're still to be quite honest we're still thinking about there's some proposals up about whether there should be new rights so for example a right to mental privacy uh and that's that's a possibility but um as far as i'm concerned we're know we're not um we haven't resolved the uh the nature of the framework that's required we're all in agreement that something something needs to be uh done but we're we haven't agreed what uh (laughs) you know what what it is uh i mean here here's something so like you know maybe some things are more um easier to Think about, I mean, like say for example, consumer neurotech. So ch- neurotech without um, without a therapeutic aim. So some kind of attention monitoring neurotech or something for playing games or something like that. Then you know we've got you've got on the one hand you you in America have got the FDA FDA approval for the therapeutic side, and then just some form of consumer regulation. For the non-therapeutic neurotech, probably that non-that standard consumer form of regulation is probably not not fit for purpose given the kind of sensitivity of uh, brain data, and probably there there needs to be some kind of different um, form of regulation. Maybe maybe some maybe some maybe even some non-therapeutic devices might even need to go through some regulatory approval process rather than just going straight to market. You know, there's things things like that that could be, um, you know,
0: could might need to be done. So, so an FDA, but for things that impact your brain?
1: Yeah, yeah. So if you, you know, if you've got um, something that's supposed to make you Pay attention for longer, or something, some kind of stimulation device, or something like that. Even though it's not really therapeutic, and you're not—it's not a medicine. It's not a—it's not to address some kind of deficit. It's to kind Enhancing. of add to your mm-hmm. enhance. You know, uh, you know, there might be. There just needs to be a bit of a, a maybe a good starting point would be some kind of consideration of the, you know, the scope of the therapeutic regulation and. The scope of the consumer device uh consumer regulation and consider consideration of whether there needs to be some kind of um some kind of intermediate um regulatory system for some kinds of devices or something like that you know that might be a kind of a practical thing uh to Whilst the the bigger question, do we need a right to mental integrity? Do we need a right to mental privacy, um, cognitive liberty? You know, these these are still being debated. But you know, there's there might be some more modest uh, tweaking of the regulatory framework, or even creation of a new regulatory body, or something like that. that might
0: be that's worth considering that's, that's fascinating. Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati podcast? If so, please like it, give the show a five-star rating on Apple podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. Uh, switching gears just a little bit one bit about your biography that stuck out to me is that you're an affiliate member of the center for agency values and ethics and i was just wondering if you could define those terms generally and discuss how they relate to each other maybe we can tie it back into neurotech once you're done with
1: um so the this this is another university this is a so i'm i work i'm at sydney university right now uh, but there's a, another university that I have I have done some work for in the past, and I'm still an affiliate member, in it, and it's Macquarie University. The Center for Agency Values and Ethics is largely something in the um, philosophy department. And I was primarily um, involved on the agency side. And so when, when we're talking about agency, we're talking about moral agency. And so there's a number of philosophers that um, Macquarie that were interested in issues of moral agency. So are, are psychopaths fully responsible for what they do uh, is um, you know could some kind of autism affect one's someone's moral agency? or and and then the the Center for Agency Values and Ethics, they set up this project that's focused on moral agency in the context of the law. And so, particularly in criminal law, but it's a bit broader than that and they've got this thing called the um, Australian Neuro Law database where we've identified cases where there's a. A neuroscience dimension to the, the, the case and so. Um, yes, yeah, just so the as I say the. The thing that i've been mainly focused in in relation to that is the agency side the moral moral agency and not some I mean I suppose ethics is of course part of it because we're
0: also talking about punishment and that's an ethical question um so it sounds suspiciously like the free will question we were kicking around earlier
1: yes yes so I've, I've worked with um a philosopher called a very eminent philosopher called Jeanette Kennett who's a she's a professor there and she had she sort of steers away from the what the free will problem she thinks that's too hard and she thinks that a better approach is just to um kind of focus on um particular issues of moral agency which are of course related to the free will problem but she sees it as a you know look the question is are psychopaths responsible or something like that and take a more manageable, (laughs) a more manageable uh Kind of goal and try and just work out that one rather than the, the, uh, the free will problem more generally but it is yeah totally connected yeah
0: what, what are some ways in which neurotechnology would integrate with those considerations uh, i've heard of and it's all super speculative and it was spe- even more speculative 10 years ago when i was reading about it but moral enhancement through technology, so perhaps making you more empathic or elevating your attention, I think, is a plausible mechanism by which you could do something like that. So just making you more aware of live options and better able to sift through them. I mean, arguably meditation is something that could get you there as well, but you could imagine a deep brain stimulation that's able to you know, cram 20 years of meditation and Zen practice directly into your brain in an afternoon. Uh, have you given any thought to the ways in which the frontier of neurotechnology might enhance agency, might erode it, or the ways in which they um, would interact with ethics.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think th- I think you. I mean, I've, so the I, I'd thought about moral agency in the context of of, of sentencing. Um, so I'll, I'll I'll give you an example related to that. So there's a device now um, for people with uh, drug resist epilepsy that d- the drugs don't work well enough for for you know in treating it it's a brain implant and and what it does is it um identifies the using a machine learning approach it identifies the neural precursors to an epileptic fit and when it sees the epileptic fit coming it just acts to electrically stimulate to, to avert the fit um so um i Co-edited another book called Interventions and the Law Regulating Human Mental Capacity, uh, and I did that a few, few years ago. And one of the chapters in that was from some philosophers, um, uh, Gilbert and Dodds, and they envisaged neurotech that works in a kind of similar way, but instead of the epileptic fit, it monitors, sorry, it monitors the brain for signs of uh, impulsive outburst you know, a sort of intimate anger disorder type thing. And when it sees, you know, when it notices the um, brain going into that state, it stimulates to calm the person down. So this is hypothetical technology that is uh, sort of extrapolating from some existing therapeutic technology for um, epilepsy so you know like i'm and they consider that in the criminal justice system and they consider the the ethics of it um and you know they thought well you know let's say let's say it's a, just an advisory system you know so you've got a bit of neurotech and um, you're starting to get worked up and me- maybe you haven't picked up on the signs yourself but this thing just texts you and says mm-hmm. You're about to fly off the handle you know had take a walk or something like that so you might think of that and they sort of thought of that as kind of enhancing agency because you now know a bit more about yourself as a moral agent and the situation you're you're in and um, so that didn't seem to um, detract from moral agency but then you you imagine the automated version where it doesn't send you a text it uh it just takes it matters into its own hands and just electrically stimulates you, perhaps unbeknownst to you, and so that you calm down. And there's some kind of uh sense in which the person might have lost a bit of autonomy there. They're not really, okay, they they're not causing trouble, but they're, you know, there's some some element of um. Of uh, perhaps a loss of autonomy by just being sort of sedated, sort of managed managed yeah. by this machine, right? And so, I've considered that in the context of um, sentencing law. You know, so let's say, let's say you're I'm acting for you in this state, and you're you you're on the edge of going to jail. You've 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 assaulted someone. You might go to jail. You might not. You know, you're just kind of on the edge. Mm-hmm. And so what I might say is, look, um, you know, so you you go and see Professor X, and the professor says, well, we'll get the brain implant, and that will manage your your uh, impulsive outbursts. And so, and then I go down to the the uh, court and say, look, don't send my client to jail. Um, you know, he he's he's had this issue with impulsivity, but fortunately, it's now dealt with he's got this brain implant, he's under the care of Professor Smith and sees them once every uh, three three weeks or something. Just make an order. Uh, you already do ankle bracelets, you do electronic right. monitoring, it's mm-hmm. just a bit more, you just make it an, a, a sort of souped up electronic monitoring order and say, give him an intensive corrections order so he just stays at home and um you know goes about his his life without going to jail and the condition of it he's got to keep this thing going for the next two years for the duration of the sentence i can't see anything in any reason in law why that can't happen um the technology is not there yet but i think it could come you know it doesn't seem a million miles you know if they can do with the epilepsy they can probably do it with the impulsivity Mm -hmm um but then you know do we want that because if you, you stop and think and what's happening here so the judge is making an order that you have this device that monitors your brain 24 7 using an automated decision process decision making process decides whether when you need therapy right uh, and then just and turns the, it who, on who runs it Elon Musk or, or Facebook or you know who who's got and then you've got hacking and possibilities and all that sort of stuff. And so this there's, there's some something for the criminal justice system to think about. But anyway, they that's the kind of ways in which perhaps it moral agency might be enhanced. Walter Glannon is a Canadian philosopher and he's keen to point out that you know neurotech can enhance people with moral agency, but It can also diminish it. It depends how it works.
0: Do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event? Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler, are both seasoned keynote speakers, able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. Go to the contact page at futuratipodcast.com to book Thomas or myself today, and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. Yeah, that, it seems to me like you'd want an extremely high bar for implanting somebody with something like that, where they just have this internal stimulus, this emotional flood that they can't control, and that spills over onto other people in ways that directly violates their autonomy. Like, you don't wanna be regulating anger out of people, I don't think, because a lot of greatness comes from that passion. Uh, a lot of great entrepreneurs, for example, are, are well known to get into screaming fights with their their vice presidents or the C suite. Or Jeff Bezos famously would would chew employees out in a way that was just biblical, uh, you know, not hurting anyone. But if you modulated that, it's not clear to me that you wouldn't also be trimming the highs off of insights or off of inspiration. I mean, it's it's well, political
1: political protests and that sort of thing. You know, quieting them down. down. Just have this kind of compliant population that. Um, never gets angry about anything and so uh, yeah there's this uh, sort of social and personal reason to think that um well let's not rush into it let's at least think about this first whether it's a good idea Absolutely. but the point is that uh, the thing is it might not it's not really being mandated so it's just you know, I just say to you, say, you know what, you, you might go to jail. It's not nice. You know, it's a nasty place. You can have the brain. It's up to you. It'll make my plea mitigation go a lot easier. And you might think, yeah, God, I don't want to go to jail. And so it doesn't, it's kind of voluntary. I mean, you've got this coercive threat of jail on the one hand, but, you know, so it does it doesn't uh, requ- it wouldn't really require some kind of authoritarian change in the law for it to start to happen right it already it's a viable
0: possibility now in my view. So we are we're coming up on Put your up. hard on your your hard stop at 45 minutes. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave the audience with?
1: I think the main the main thing is that um, the neurotechnology thing is is starting to take off. There's quite a lot of commercial interest in it and um, I think the the main thing to think of is you know other technologies that have taken off quickly um like, like social media and then led to problems and uh, that might happen with neurotechnology and so it's worth uh just you know addressing this now because things are happening now developments happening uh that would be my that would be my uh my point so s- scholars lawyers um, law reformers, uh, ethicists that might, you know, have some interaction with companies, you know, this that this should be thought of and perhaps acted fairly soon. But there needs to be some thinking first, but not not for too long. <laughs>
0: <laughs> think the right amount but no longer i think that's a, exactly that's a that's an excellent headline for the episode thanks so much for your perspective and your insight i really appreciate the time thanks thanks for the invitation thank you
1: this podcast is a part of the c-suite radio network for more top business podcasts visit c-suite